The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin this morning, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer during which time John can turn the fans off, because I think it's cool enough in here. Anybody back there cool enough? Just want to make sure, yeah, it's not. We don't have 200 people in here today like we did yesterday. So cut them off. And uh, we will uh, use the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to make sure we are in fellowship and ready to study the Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word, to be refreshed in our souls by your truth. We are reminded that Jesus said that we are sanctified by truth. Your word is truth, and by knowing the truth, we will know what it is to be truly free. And that freedom has to do, first of all, with the freedom we uh, derive, freedom from the penalty of sin at salvation, and then as we grow and mature as believers, freedom from uh, the, the power of the sin nature, the presence of the sin, the power of the sin nature in the present life. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, we might be challenged by the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians, and we are starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, in 1 Corinthians 1... Paul laid down the foundation for what he is going to cover in the remainder of this epistle. And that foundation is really based upon the doctrine of positional truth, that at the instant of salvation we are sanctified, that is, positional sanctification. We are in Christ. Everything that we need for the spiritual life in terms of spiritual assets, spiritual provisions, is given to us at the instant of salvation. The only thing that we don't have at the instant of salvation is a knowledge of God's Word. And as we study and learn God's Word, that is the process that Paul outlines in Romans 12:2 that we renovate our thinking, we renew our mind according to the absolute standards of God's Word. So when Paul begins addressing, and remember, we always have to come back to remembering who the Corinthians are. I think 
In some sense, it's discouraging, and in another sense, it's greatly encouraging because in many ways we can look down our nose at the Corinthians and say, well, at least I'm not that bad. Um, at least I think most of us can say that. So it, it's a reminder of the grace of God that if, if all of this is true for one of the worst churches, one of the biggest collections of spiritual losers in all of history, then it's certainly true for most of us. And uh, we can thank... Uh, we can thank God because of all that he has supplied us and all that he has provided for us. Now, as Paul addresses the problems that he's been presented with in Corinth, there are personal problems, there's marriage problems, there's, there's problems with relation to worship, uh, spiritual gifts, all manner of problems, not unlike any church today. Paul begins not as the modern psycho shrink, psycho shaman, pastor does today with trying to figure out what the problems are and how we can figure out some uh, some techniques to get past these things, get in touch with our inner child or arrogant self or whatever the latest, the latest gimmick is. He starts with positional truth, recognizing who and what we are in Jesus Christ. And that is such a profound thing that, that I don't think most Christians ever spend enough time thinking about everything that we have in Christ. John, we, we hit this in 1 John 3, 1 a couple of weeks ago when John starts off and, and says, Concentrate, look, behold, think about what manner of love, uh, the greatness of God's love that he has given to us that we can be called the children of God. That relates to positional truth. What an incredible thing has happened in our lives because of what uh, Jesus Christ did for us and what he supplied us at the instant of salvation. So Paul lays down the foundation with positional truth in the first part of chapter 1, and then at the end he focuses on the starting point of the real problem in Corinth, and that is that they have not renovated their thinking. They, are, they have changed perhaps some details. This is what happens with a lot of Christians is they change certain details in their life. You look at some people. Let's take an example of some obvious situation where you have somebody who's, who's on drugs, he's a alcoholic, he's generally a failure, he's 19 or 20 years old, and he's caught up with criminality and all kinds of licentiousness and problems, and then he becomes a Christian. He only realizes after a while that, well, Christians shouldn't do some of the things he's doing, so he gets off the drugs and he gets off of uh, alcohol and he quits uh, running around and chasing every girl that he sees, and uh, so there is an external transformation of the details of life. But see, Christianity focuses on changing, first of all, the way in which we think, not just those external details. Not that those external details aren't part of it, but if that's transformed without the core thinking, the, what, what philosophers call the core world view, at the core of that person's thinking, then basically they're still thinking at the core of their being, like the unbeliever down the street. They just live a, a, an external life that seems to conform to Christianity. But as we've seen in First in First John, that the key issue in breaking fellowship with First John wasn't overt sin, wasn't sins of the tongue, it wasn't even mental attitude sins. It was heresy. It was false a, a false doctrine related to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is a radical concept for most of us because when we think of breaking fellowship with God, we don't think of it in terms of holding to false doctrinal positions. We think of it in terms of committing personal sin. But John is foremost looking at the problem of, uh, of false doctrine when he talks about the problem of fellowship in 1 John. And Paul is addressing that same thing because he recognizes that these Corinthians are still thinking 
like the pagan culture around them. They have failed to apply what he has taught to the core issue of their worldview, how they looked at life, and so they still have the same uh, values of the pagan world around. They still operate on the same ideals. They still operate on the same standards of what's important in life, what's valuable, what is significant. And as a result, they emphasized form over content in Greek culture, as we have seen in the last few weeks, debating the public debate was, uh, was a great form of entertainment, and people would go to them just to watch these guys perform because it didn't matter so much what they were arguing for, what the debate was about was simply a secondary matter, relatively insignificant. What matters is how they debated, how they crafted their arguments, how they presented what they were saying. They had a good, well-turned phrase. The way they used language was important. And the, the, the metaphors that they used, the, the, the verbal pictures that they created was important. And, and then the style, how they presented it, the, the overall dramatic effect uh, of, the, uh, of their rhetoric. Uh, and, and so often today, that's what happens in, uh, in our culture. You go to some churches or you hear some Christians and they, they want to go to a certain kind, listen to a certain kind of message on Sunday morning because they're, they're emphasizing style over, over substance. And uh, the same thing happens when it comes to evangelism. And there's an emphasis today over technique instead of substance, that somehow the power, the real ability is that if we can just say it the right way, if we can just present it in the, in the right emotional tones, if somehow we just have the right methodology, that somehow we're going to solve people's and surmount people's negative volition, and we're going to solve the problems of their uh, spiritual obstinacy. And this was a problem in Corinth because the culture emphasized these values that when it came to church, which is centered around public speaking, they evaluated the teaching, they evaluated evangelism, they evaluated what, what the pastor was communicating on the basis of this pagan uh, framework for public speaking. They, wanted to, they were looking at, uh, at Paul and they would be evaluating him on, on how well he turned a phrase, on on how well he spoke, on how he crafted his arguments, on the verbal pictures, on the dramatic pauses. And when he would speak loudly and then he would speak... So you, you get into all of that in your homiletics courses in seminary. That's why the, the only time I made a C in seminary was in homiletics because I just despised the whole methodology that they taught. I just, just hated every aspect of those classes because of uh, their whole approach to homiletics. It's based on... It's still today based on Aristotelian concepts of public speaking and oratory rather than just simply expounding the word, teaching people how to think. See, there's such a tremendous difference in the concept of preaching and what we believe in here, which is the teaching of the word. And it has to do with your ultimate goal in preaching as it is practiced today, not in terms of what the Bible says preaching is, but as it is found in 95% of your churches, Preaching is oriented towards exhortation, towards application, towards somehow uplifting people, giving them a little encouragement. And, and over the years, I've heard people say, oh, when I go away from church, I want to feel good about things. I want to, want to feel inspired. And that, that's such a human viewpoint pagan concept. See, when you go away from church, you ought to have your toes stepped on a little bit by the truth of God's Word. There ought to be a, a challenge set before you, uh, before any of us, that the, Word of, that the Holy Spirit is using the Word of God to challenge the way we think and the way we live, that we need to do things differently, that we need to apply doctrine in different areas. There ought to be a, 
there ought to be a sense at times even of pain and misery, as we've seen, as the Word of God slices like a, like a scalpel, a two-edged sword, and really pierces to the heart of some real problems that we all have in our thinking because we're all essentially sinners and we've grown up with pagan concepts. And so we believe that the core issue here in, in, in the communication of the Word is to teach us how to think biblically. And to learn how to think is a radical concept. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes mental sweat. You can't get it by just showing up at church once a week. You have to completely renovate your thinking from the ground up. It's like going into, um, let me use another great regional example. One of the things you notice if you travel around the country very much is when you get out of... uh, uh, get out of New England, or not just New England, but also the, the Northeast where you have a lot of old buildings. What happens here is people go in and they, they try to keep those old buildings going. You get out west of the Mississippi where nothing is very old. You go down to Texas, you go out to Los Angeles, you go to Colorado. What happens? You get a house 20 years old, they bulldoze it down and put a new house on the lot. Over and over again, if it's over 30 or 40 years, get rid of it, put up something new. And that constantly changes the culture because... What happens is, and Ken's noticed this in uh, some of the stuff he's been learning down there as a building inspector, what happens is if a, if a city is constantly putting in new structures and replacing old ones, what happens, everything gets upgraded with new technology. What happens here is I think there's still ha- pe- folks living in houses around here who haven't quite gotten used to the fact that there's indoor plumbing. You know, and that's not just around here. I was talking to a friend of mine down in Missouri, and, and uh, Gene was telling me about a guy who lives on a farm not too far from him, and built him a new house a couple of years ago and put in an outhouse. Man, he said, you know, he grew up that way, so he's still thinking the old ways. You're not doing that in my house. So he wasn't going to have any, any indoor plumbing in, in his house. You know, that's just, a, that's just an old way of thinking that isn't adapting to, to new forms. But see, that's the essence of Christianity is to tear the whole thing down is to recognize that from the day you were born until the day you got serious about doctrine, is you were constructing a, a, an edifice in your soul that was built on faulty foundations, and even though there were maybe some good things in there, the whole thing was constructed out of kilter. Uh, none of the walls were in alignment. Uh, all the piping was off. Everything was messed up. And what, what you have to do is not just go in there and straighten out a few details. See, that's how most people approach Christianity. So what we're going to do is we're going to go in here and we're going to maybe tear out this wall, maybe tear out that wall, and perhaps we'll, we'll paint this room a different color, tear out the carpet here and put in hardwood floors. But what the Holy Spirit is teaching us is what you have to do is go in there with a bulldozer, take it down to the foundation, blast that away, and start over. And the new foundation is going to be built upon Jesus Christ and is going to be built on an understanding of everything that we have in Jesus Christ and then you build it out from there. And, and that's a completely different approach to the pulpit ministry. And that's why we do things the way we do here, and that's why it's so different from uh, any other church, is because we have a completely different orientation to the purpose of the pulpit ministry. And uh, as, uh, as I've said many times, the purpose here isn't just to teach some wonderful things so that you feel uplifted and can go home and remember a point or two during the week, and perhaps if uh, I crack a joke or pull some humor in that you remember that joke to tell your friends during the week. The idea is for you to learn things and see things and hear them so much that you begin to think that way. You go home and and perhaps you, as we all do whenever we're learning anything, we imitate the vocabulary of our our teacher. 
I did that as a student in seminary, as a young man growing up in church, imitating the 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 uh, uh, teacher, the pastor, and then eventually, as you mature, you take over with your own personality, your own style, your own substance. It was interesting. A couple of weeks ago, this was a little longer than that. Now, about a month ago, I was down uh, in Texas, and I taught at a revival at a small church in Wharton, Texas, which is probably not quite as large as Norwich, uh, about 40 miles from Houston. And the the usually at the, at the black churches, when they have their, their revivals, they'll have two speakers. The first hour is a lecturer, and the second hour is the preacher, the exhorter. And so the guy who was preaching that night was a former student of mine from about 15 years ago. And I've known him for, of course, since then, but I also know who he has, who he listens to in terms of preaching, because in the black churches there's a real art form to their, to their preaching, and they always end up, or frequently they end up with a hoop. Now, y'all haven't been exposed to hooping yet, but um, anyway, as I listened to him, as I listened to him, I, could, I, I heard echoes of things that I had taught him. When he hooped, I heard R.A. Williams. I mean, he sounded so much like R.A., it was unbelievable. And when he said other things, he sounded like two or three other people, and I could almost go through his message and say, okay, he, here he sounds so much like this person, here he sounds like me, there he sounds like this person over here. When he talks this way, when he moved, when he moved, he was just like another guy I know. And, uh, and see, all that comes together and influences a person. But as we, as we grow and mature, we get past that, uh, that's part of the growth process until it becomes us. But that's how we grow. That's how anybody goes through that maturation process. But it takes concentration. You don't change anything unless you're spending a lot of time concentrating and you make it a priority. And a priority means that, that some, and some of you have awakened to this and some of you haven't figured it out yet, but a priority means that doctrine is your life. Everything else becomes secondary to doctrine. Because without doctrine, none of that other stuff really matters anyway. It's not going to be significant. And if you don't get right with doctrine, sooner or later the Lord's going to take all that other stuff away from you to make you realize that doctrine's got to be the number one priority. So Paul is addressing this problem of the fact that the, the, the Greeks have such a shallow view, the Greeks in Corinth had such a shallow view of Christianity, that they had just adopted some of the externals and superficials, but they had not transformed the core of their thinking. So in chapter 1, Paul has addressed that, and he is taking apart their basic presuppositions, their basic assumptions about the value, the value system and the, and the standards they use to evaluate speaking. He's taking it apart plank by plank. Now, he not only has the problem of dealing with the Greek concept, but also the Jewish concept. Remember, we studied in Acts 18 when he first came to Corinth, he went to the synagogue. So there were a number of Jewish believers in the congregation as well, and their problem wasn't restricted to Greek philosophy. It was their Jewish legalism in the background. So we saw in 120 that Paul raised three questions which he's answering in, in, the next, in this section. First, he said, where is the wise? That is, where is the philosopher of this age? Second, he said, where is the scribe? That is, the Jewish legalist. legalist. And then he, third, he said, where is the debater of this age? And then the point that he is making is the fourth question he asked there, 
and that is, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? He's driving home the point that God's wisdom is better than man's wisdom, and that God has indeed rendered the value system, the thought systems of the world, uh, null and void. They are irrelevant. And then in verses 21 down through 28, he answers the first question, where is the philosopher? Now, he's, when he asks the question, where is the philosopher, he's not really asking for a location, but he says, in what sense, and, 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 and where in the sense of what place does their thinking have in Christianity? In what sense does, does that kind of value system, uh, does that value system have a place in Christianity in any sense whatsoever? And the answer is none. Human viewpoint has no place in Christianity at all, and we have to constantly be on guard because we're always trying to slip our own efforts, our own abilities into the Christian life and into Christian ministry. It's just amazing all the subtle ways that we try to assert ourselves so that we can somehow at some level, no matter how subtle or self-righteous it might be, find something to boast about in terms of our own effort. So down through 28, he demonstrates that the basic standards of Greek philosophy do not have a role in the Christian life. Then in verses 30 through 31, he emphasizes the fact that the issue is what Christ did for us. It's all grace. It has to do with God, not us. Concluding in verse 31, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord, not in their own works. See, that's the problem with the Jewish legalist, is the Jewish legalist was glorying in his own efforts, in his own works, in his own obedience to the law. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he addresses the third question, and that is, where is the debater of this age, and what role does rhetoric, what role does oratory have in the gospel ministry, whether it's in evangelism or whether it's in teaching? And he basically is going to conclude that there is a contrast between human viewpoint systems of oratory and verbal expression and divine viewpoint systems, and don't confuse the two, and there's no place for human oratory per se in the Christian ministry. Now, I want to have a caveat there. That doesn't mean you don't think about what you're going to say. That doesn't mean you don't try to say it well, say it clearly, explain things lucidly to people. doesn't mean that you don't pay attention to your vocabulary, but that's not the issue. You see, what the point that he's going to make is it doesn't matter whether you get in the pulpit and you stutter and you fumble over yourself and you mumble a little bit, if you're communicating the gospel, you can be a as effective as the person who is extremely articulate because the power is not in the methodology. The power is in the gospel. And that's true for getting in the pulpit, and that's true for witnessing. When you're witnessing to somebody, you may not know all the answers. You may not be the most clear uh, person in the world when it comes to explaining things. Maybe you're not a very organized person, or maybe you're a new believer and you really uh, haven't had much experience with this, so you just sort of fumble around sometimes and you sort of kick yourself in the seat afterwards and say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. I made a fool of myself. The issue is not how well you do it. See, that's the grace of this whole concept of ministry, is it's up to the Holy Spirit. It's not up to us. It, what, the, the, the person who is, who is a, a stutter, stutterer and a fumble bum when it comes to trying to articulate the gospel is, can be just as effective as the most... Uh, well-thought-out, intelligent, academic around, because the power is not in the methodology. The, 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 the issue is not the, the skills. The issue is not technique. 
The issue is the go- getting the gospel clear, and the Holy Spirit is the one who gives it the real, the real power. And that's the point that Paul makes in the first five verses of chapter 2, addressing the question, where is the debater of this age? In other words, what's the role of rhetoric and excellent verbal skills? They don't have a role. That's not the issue. I'm not saying that's not important at times, but it's not the issue, and I've got a great illustration we'll wrap with when I finish. Verse 1, Paul begins and says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. What he is saying here is when I first came, he's using an aorist active participle, from the de- deponent verb erkamai. See, we're going to get a lot of grammar. I'm about to finish my dissertation, which is writing a grammar, Greek grammar for people who don't know Greek. So I'm so immersed in grammar right now, I'm just thinking in terms of it. But it really helps to understand a passage. We've got a verb here, erkamai, an aorist active participle that lacks an article, so it's a temporal participle, when I came. Now, an aorist participle always precedes the action of the main verb. The main verb is did come with a negative. So he says, when I came, I did not come. And so since the aorist of the participle precedes the action of the main verb, which incidentally is also an aorist, what Paul is talking about is when I first arrived. This is really an idiomatic expression. He says, when I first arrived, I did not come before you. I did not speak to you. I did not approach you uh, on the basis of the excellence of speech or of wisdom. When he says, when I came to you, it's the Greek preposition pros, meaning face to face. When I came face to face with you, when I first started witnessing to you, when I first came and I was in the synagogue at Corinth and I was explaining the gospel, when, when I first came and, and we split from the synagogue and I was teaching you on a, on a weekly basis, when I first came, I did not do it on the basis of the excellence of speech or wisdom. And here, it is the prep, Greek preposition kata plus the accusative, which always indicates a norm or a standard. So he says, I didn't do it on the basis of the standard of excellence of speech or wisdom. By excellence of speech, he means the superiority of words. It's the Greek word logos, which is the word that has numerous meanings, but here it has to do with the excellence of words. He wasn't emphasizing the turn of the phrase, the the well-crafted phrase, the picturesque metaphor. He wasn't emphasizing how he said what he said. That wasn't the standard that he was using. It wasn't based on that or of wisdom. That is, he didn't get into all of the little philosophical arguments that seem to entertain the Greek mindset. They love to get involved in all of these uh, philosophical arguments about the nature of existence, the nature of being, the eternality of matter, all of these different things. And Paul didn't get into that at all. He just... He rejected that. He wouldn't let the Greek world system set the agenda for what he talked about. So he's not going to let the pagan value system set the agenda for either how he says what he says or what he says, the content of the message. He says, when I came to you, I didn't come according to the standard of excellent speech or wisdom, declaring... And here we have a present active participle. He said, I did not come to you uh, by declaring, and here it's a participle of manner and the way in which he declared the gospel. He says, declaring the testimony of God. Now, the, the uh, King James Version that I'm using here uses the phrase testimony of God. 
as does the New American Standard Version. However, that's an incorrect translation. What we have in the Greek is the phrase, the mysterion of God, the mysteries of God. That is, mystery refers to doctrine that has not yet been revealed. So he's talking about the entire realm of church-age truth that was not revealed in the Old Testament. There's an, there is a very subtle slap there against the Jewish legalists because they keep wanting to go back to the law. It's incredible how many Christians want to go back to the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law as the precedent for living the spiritual life today. It is the dominant view out there, whether you're talking about a Roman Catholic Church, a Lutheran Church, Calvinist churches, whether you're talking about our many Arminian churches, people have bought into replacement theology. That is the dominant framework for almost every Christian organization. What they're doing is they're building the Christian life on the Old Testament as the precedent. But what Paul emphasizes here, he didn't come teaching the Old Testament, he came teaching the mysteries of doctrine. He's teaching church-age doctrine. He is teaching the new information that God has revealed to him as the apostle to the Gentiles related to the unique spiritual life of the church age. So he says, I came to you, and it wasn't according to the norm or standard of secular oratory or rhetorical skills or even philosophical content uh, to declare the mysteries of the kingdom of God, the mystery of God. For I determined not to know anything Verse 2 is a contrast. He says, for explanation, I determined, which has to do with his, with his, um, his decision, I did not, I determined not to know anything, sort of a double negative in the Greek, which emphasizes a positive. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. He's going to focus on the, the issue is Christ and what Christ did for us. This is so important when you're witnessing is don't get distracted by secondary issues. Now, whenever we witness to somebody, frequently people will say, well, what about this, and what about the heathen, and, and what about creation and evolution, or do I have to believe this? Don't get distracted by those things. Sometimes we have to answer those. They're legitimate questions, and it's okay to answer them at some level. But remember, when you are communicating the gospel and biblical content to an unbeliever, they do not have the wherewithal to understand everything. That's what we'll get to starting next week in the second half of this chapter, that the unsaved man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. He doesn't have a human spirit. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit teaching him, so he doesn't have the tools necessary to ultimately understand and put together these doctrines of Scripture. What he can understand, because God the Holy Spirit is helping him understand the gospel, is the issues at the cross. And that's what we're going to see today. We have to focus on the cross. And so Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now let me explain something else about this statement. It sounds as if Paul is saying, the only thing that I taught you was basic information about Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. You see, Jesus Christ and the crucifixion is the core of everything in the New Testament. See, we know from what Paul says in Corinthians that he taught them what we would consider to be other things. But you see, Jesus Christ, as Paul says, is he's going to come back to this in 1 Corinthians 3. Christ is the foundation. So once we understand who Jesus Christ is as the hypostatic union, the God-man, then the next step is we understand that as the God-man in his humanity, 
Jesus Christ faced and handled every problem, every issue, every temptation in life on the basis of his dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. That's the precedent for the Christian life. So when Paul says that I determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, the entire realm of the spiritual life is included in that concept. He's teaching them about the spiritual life because it was Jesus Christ who, who pioneered that spiritual life. It was Jesus Christ who, who set that precedent in the way in his humanity he handled the issues of life. And we studied that last Sunday morning, second hour, under the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. So he's going to focus on Jesus Christ, who and what he, he is, and him crucified is the crucifixion is the core issue in the Christian life because we understand there that Jesus Christ did everything for us. He paid the penalty for every single sin. So that means that every post-salvation sin is already taken care of at the cross. The only issue is our ongoing relationship with him in terms of, in terms of fellowship. So these are the core issues. He's, he summarizes it. Uh, very briefly, but there's a lot more to it than simply basic Christology and basic soteriology. Everything else in the Christian life is built upon an understanding of these two concepts. So Paul emphasizes what the priority is. He wasn't going to be distracted by getting involved in discussions about politics, getting involved in discussions about uh, the moral majority, getting involved in discussions about uh, how Christians ought to treat uh, Muslims. He wasn't going to get involved in any of those, those side issues. He was going to focus on the basic issue of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then in verse 3 he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Now this is very interesting because it sounds like Paul has just fallen apart. Like oh, Paul sounds like he came to Corinth and he had a nervous breakdown and it's all he can do to get in the pulpit and communicate the word. Well, we have to understand some things about what had just happened. Remember, Paul had, had before coming to Corinth, Paul had been in Athens, and in Athens he had quite an encounter with the intellectuals there in, in Athens. And here he's revealing not, not necessarily carnality, but he's revealing his humanity just like any of us. Paul was dealt, in some sense, a, 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 a defeat or a rejection when he was in Corinth. They called him a a babbler. They, they uh, rejected everything he said. They ridiculed him. They sneered at him. But for the most part, they didn't accept what he was saying. Now, most of us can, can relate to that. We've all had experiences. If you've ever tried to witness to anybody, you've probably had the experience of people calling you a fool or an idiot or how can you believe those things, and afterwards you felt pretty stung by that, and, and it was going to be a little while before you tried to, to uh, witness again because... Uh, having been rejected, you didn't want to go through that again. See, that revealed that your, your priorities were off and you're focusing on the wrong thing. But we've all done that. Every one of us has, has gone through that process that we, we witness to people. And even today, no matter how mature you are, there are times when you know you have the opportunity to witness, but there's something in you and you don't do it because you're afraid of rejection or you rationalize it. It'll be, you know, the next time I'll have a better opportunity. Right now I'm just building a relationship. Whatever the lies are that we tell us, uh, we do that, and so we recognize that it, it, there's nothing wrong in in having that fear. That's what Paul says here. He's with them in weakness. Now, the term weakness is the Greek word asthenia, which can refer to either a spiritual weakness or a physical weakness. And here, I think it has to do with with a physical weakness. It could be that Paul was going; he was tired. He had been traveling 
a lot. Maybe he was going through some sort of physical malady or, or illness, and that might have affected his, his overall stamina at this point. He says he was in fear. Now, now fear means, can mean a number of different things. It can indicate a mental attitude sin where we're operating on the fear, or it can just be the same thing that happens with many of us. We, we have a little fear and trepidation when we get ready to witness to somebody. Because in some sense, we're going to expose who we are and what we believe, and, and we might be rejected. We might be ridiculed or sneered at. But you see, the, the, the coward is not the person who has fear. The coward is the person who operates on the fear. The brave person is not a person who is fearless. The brave person is the person who does not operate on his fear. And that's where Paul is. He, he recognizes that, that at times he's facing this intellectual crowd that has a lot of questions and he's already been rejected and sneered at by them so inside of him there's this there's this fear there's a certain level of anxiety that is the result of his sin nature but he's not going to operate on it instead he's going to rely not upon his own ability his own strength he's going to rely upon the the strength of the gospel he recognizes that the real power is in god the holy spirit and in the message not in who and what he is so he doesn't operate on his weakness and fear and trembling. So apparently, Paul really got shook up after his rejection in Athens. The word for trembling here indicates a physical response to what what has been what was going on in his life. So apparently, uh, he was really bothered by that rejection. And uh, trembling is often the result of uh, of a little adrenaline surge. And when we're afraid, sometimes that jacks up the adrenaline. And the adrenaline causes a physical physiological response. So what we see here is that Paul apparently was really uh, shaken by his rejection in uh, Athens. But the point that we need to realize is there's nothing wrong in being shaken by things. There's nothing wrong in being upset over the fact that we've been rejected. It's how we handle it at that point. Are we going to let that control our actions in the future and not witness and and not expose ourselves in, in, in such an intimate way, or are we going to realize the powers in God and trust Him despite the fact that we are a little bit uh, fearful and anxious about witnessing? And, and obviously Paul did not operate on his fear and his weakness, but he uh, continued to boldly proclaim the gospel. So he admits the fact that, that he is a fallen, sinful creature and is just as much uh, succumbed, or just as much a a product of his humanity as any of us, but he's not going to let that affect what he does. I was with you in weakness and feared in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So in verse 4 he says, my, my speech, that is the words that I used, and my preaching, that is the, the format that I used, my proclamation, kerugma, we're not in persuasive words of wisdom. That is, he is not going to utilize the debater's technique of winning people to his side. He's not going to emphasize technique. Now, this is something that always happens in evangelism classes. I can't tell you how many times I've gone through evangelism courses, either in seminary or in various churches, where they all have some sort of gimmick that if you just follow this methodology you will become a successful soul winner. And everybody has their little gimmicks and, and a ways to try to convince people to trust the Lord. You know, one of the greatest tools that was developed in American history, one of the greatest salesmanship techniques was came out of the early 19th century. Everybody, almost everybody uses it. We don't. 
Almost everybody uses it in their churches, and nobody knows where it came from. And that's the altar call, the invitation. It came out of, it was an invention by a, an early 19th century evangelist by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. Now, what most people don't realize is methodology always reflects theology. You do what you do the way you do it because of what you believe. And Finney didn't just say, oh, gosh, this is a good idea. We need People need to make a decision, so we'll just have them come forward, and that'll crystallize uh, their decision for them, give them something to look back on. No. Finney did not believe that man, every human being, was born in Ad- with Adam's original sin and was totally depraved. Therefore, they were basically good, not basically evil. The problem wasn't a constitutional problem. The problem was really an emotional problem. They just really didn't want to do it. So what you have to do is create an environment that puts the right pressure on people so they'll want to do it. It becomes manipulative. And so he developed the what they called the uh, uh, altar call and the uh, uh, anxious bench where people would come down and sit. All of this was designed to get people into a, a certain state of uh, anxiety and emotion in order to convince them that they needed to become a Christian. And he developed the whole concept of having a singing 10, 15, 20 verses of a closing hymn, uh, waiting for people to come down. I mean, I've seen some of these things in some churches where they don't get anybody to come forward, and they just use any gimmick in the world to get people to come forward. If you have a mother, come forward and pray for her. If you have, you know, and, and, and somehow the, the pastor gets his kicks because he's gotten 30, 40, 50 people, the whole congregation out of their chairs and down front at the, at the altar rail. There's no such thing as an altar today. We're living in the church age. But you see, this is the fact that all this methodology comes out of bad theology, and most people don't have enough understanding of church history or or theology to know the difference. And so Paul is saying he's not going to use these manipulative techniques in order to get people saved. He's just going to present the truth. My message and my preaching was not in persuasive words of wisdom. It's not based on technique. It's not based on salesmanship. I'm telling you, one of the greatest dangers to, to evangelism is the modern salesman. I can't tell you how many times over the years I have run into problems with people uh, here or there in the local church or just in terms of ministry who come up with some great technique for, se- for selling Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what it is. And they have uh, come out of a background. Some people are really are just natural sellers. They could, sell, uh, they could se- sell air conditioners to Eskimos and make them love it, you know, make them use it every day. Some people are that way. And then as soon as they get saved, they start thinking that evangelism, because there are certain similarities, there's just superficial similarities, that, that evangelism can really b- benefit, the evangelism in the local church can really uh, benefit by their tremendous understanding and expertise in sales. And so then they start bringing in all these sales gimmicks and ideas into the local church. And it happens with ministries, too, that, that in some sense a, a church and a ministry is trying to, to, you're trying to gain converts, so they look at that in terms of marketing. And that's what the whole church growth movement is. It's nothing but taking a lot of salesmanship techniques and marketing devices and applying them to the local church so that you become attractive. And see, in a society that is as commercial as ours is and, and a culture where we are also uh, attuned to marketing devices and being looked at as, as, as the object of, of marketing devices, that people respond to that. That's why you go to so many of these churches that are using these these uh, uh, church growth techniques, 
and they're enormous. There are several thousand people in size, and they're just they're just exploding. But there's no doctrine there. There's no teaching going on. Nobody's growing spiritually. There's a lot of verbiage, and they talk about the fact that oh, we have Bible classes and Bible studies. But if you go to those things, there's no content there. There's no real substance anywhere because the emphasis in this in the whole scenario is, is on technique and style. And when you create a culture, it's, it, it's like a Pavlovian response in American culture. If somebody approaches us with a good marketing tool, we just jump to it. We want to buy it, whatever it is, because we've been trained to do that from watching commercials on television, listening to commercials on the radio, and all of the visual imagery that is used. So as soon as we see the right visual imagery, we're drawn to it, and sometimes we don't even realize how we are being drawn into these things. And that's what happens in in many of these churches. They are in complete violation of the Word of God and the rationales that they use in order to justify what they do is just amazing, the, the logical hoops that they jump through. But Paul completely rejects all of that. My message, my preaching was not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He's going to make sure that more than anything else, that if people are there, it's because of the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And that is something that, that I have learned and, would, and try to implement in the ministry of this congregation, is that we're going to focus on the important thing, which is teaching the Word of God. And when people come, and, and we have visitors that come on occasion, they're not going to be hit with a lot of uh, extraneous stuff like you find in many churches. We're not going to spend a lot of time saying, oh, welcome to all the visitors. If you're a visitor here, please stand up so that we can uh, identify you and appeal to your uh, approbation lust and give you a little recognition. Um, if you're going to find out when you come here that the Word of God is what's taught. And if you are hungry for the truth and you're positive to doctrine, then you will stay. But if you don't, you're not going to stay. And frankly, I don't want anybody here that doesn't want to make doctrine the number one priority in their life. Uh, there are a lot of churches. There's nothing wrong with having a choir if we had... Uh, enough musical talent. We might have a little special music every now and then. Uh, sounded pretty good yesterday when we had uh, the, we were filled with the rafters at uh, the memorial service and and all of that singing. I was afraid it would shake the building down. We would we would all be absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. But but we survived. And uh, there's nothing wrong with having a choir. There's nothing wrong with having. Uh, certain other ministries, and I'll be very kind and not call them programs, but just other ministries in, in a legitimate sense in, in a local church. But what I have seen happen in so many churches that have all these various things is that people start coming to that church because of, they can sing in the choir, because they can play a music, musical instrument in, in the orchestra, because they can be involved at some level in some extra curricular ministry at the local church, and they're not there to learn doctrine. They're there because they like to sing, and it's a, it's a decent choir, and the choir director is good, and, and people generally believe like they believe, so they feel comfortable with this crowd, but they're not there because doctrine is the highest priority in their life. Then the next thing you know, some issue comes up in the congregation, a doctrinal question one way or the other, and all of a sudden you have the church split. I've seen this happen before, and half the church is there for doctrine, and they understand the doctrinal issues. But the other half of the church, they're not there for doctrine. And so they don't want somebody who's making a big stand on some point of doctrine because that's just going to be too divisive and that's going to cause problems. So the next thing you know, you have major splits and divisions in the congregation 
because you have people there for the wrong reason. And I would rather have 40 or 50 or 60 people who are there for one reason only, and that is to learn doctrine, than to have two or 300 people and have uh, half of them there because they like to sing in the choir or because they enjoy uh, putting on children's Christmas plays and they get to do something with that or whatever it is. Not that those things are wrong, but they're not the issue. And the issue has to be the Word of God, the teaching of the Gospel, and the teaching of the doctrines related to the spiritual life. So in verse 4, Paul emphasizes what the priority is to be. It is on doctrine. Doctrine that is related to the filling of the Holy Spirit and power. That is not force or strength, as I've said again. We have to make sure we understand power in the in, uh, Corinthians is not talking necessarily even about miraculous power. It's talking about the ability to live the spiritual life, the ability to understand doctrinal truth. And then in verse 5 he says that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We want to make sure that there's, that there's no chance that in any way that you're putting your faith in, that, that your faith in God is the result of technique and the result of rhetorical persuasion or the result of any human factor. Because let, let me tell you something. If you trust Christ because you've heard a good argument, because you've heard an, an intellectual speaker, there's always somebody more intelligent, more logical, who has a better presentation to come along that may convince you the other way. The issue is the truth and being convinced by the truth of God's Word by the Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, I want to look at a couple of things related to the doctrine of witnessing. First of all, seven negatives. Seven negatives about witnessing, things that are not important in witnessing. First of all, it's not about personality. It has nothing to do with personality. Of course, some people may be a little more winsome in their approach because of their personality, their people-type uh, personalities, and they enjoy getting together with people, and so it seems like they're more effective. But it's not about personality. Secondly, it's not about methodology or technique. It's not how you do it. It's not, well, if you just learn a better way to do it, uh, you'll be more effective. It's not about personality. It's not about methodology or technique. Third, it's not about reasoning ability. Sometimes when you witness to somebody, you, we, we've all been there. We, we feel like, I just didn't have, they said this and I should have said that. Uh, why didn't I come back and say it this other way? We always think of that in second guess playing Monday morning, Monday morning quarterback. But see, the, 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 the error in that is that we made the issue a rational issue. See, the issue of salvation is not intellectual. It is spiritual. That's what we're going to see through this whole section. It doesn't have to do with these rational arguments. Those rational arguments are merely rationalizations and subterfuges the person on negative volition is using to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, according to Romans chapter 1. And the fact is, that according to Romans chapter 1, they know God exists, and they're rejecting it, they're suppressing the truth, and they've developed all of these rationalizations and mechanisms for rejecting the truth and justifying their lack of belief. So it's not about our reasoning ability. Of course we ought to try to present it as clearly, as cogently, and as rational as possible, but that's not the issue. Remember, this isn't a debate about who's right. Now, we've all fallen into that trap at one point or another where we end up in an argument with this guy we're trying to get saved and trying to convince them that, that, that we're right and, and they're wrong, and we end up getting into a battle of egos. 
You don't start off trying to prove the Word of God. You can't prove the Word of God any more than they can prove their system because, as I said, er, as I've taught many times, every system of thought, whether it's rational, rationalism or empiricism or mysticism, every system of human thought ultimately is circular. It's built upon certain unproved assumptions uh, that end up being uh, self-justifying. Uh, the Bible is like holding somebody up with a handgun. You point that gun at him, you don't get involved in an argument whether or not that gun works. You just shoot them with it. You know, if somebody breaks into your house and you pull out your shotgun, you don't get in an argument about when it was made. You don't get in a discussion about uh, how frequently it's been cleaned. You don't get into a discussion about whether or not a 12-gauge will create larger holes than a 10-gauge or be more effective as an anti-personnel weapon. You just shoot them with it. You know, you just take out your Bible and you use it. You use the Word of God because the power is in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, not in these other factors. So point four, it's not about intellect, education, or academics. Now, that doesn't mean that intellect, education, and academics are wrong. They're just saying that's not the issue in gospel presentation or teaching the Word because the power isn't in those things. Fifth, it's not about success. It's you, we've all seen this in churches where they trot out somebody who's, who's been very successful in business or the successful athlete, and this guy's you know, got a Super Bowl ring, and so somehow he has more validity when he talks about Jesus Christ than the person who, uh, who just has an eighth-grade education and been studying the Word all of his life and understands the truth and never did much or made much. See, it's not about success. It's about the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and the power of the truth of God's Word. It's not about how many people we've witnessed to or how many people have responded it's about being faithful. See, God praised Noah for preaching the gospel. Noah preached for 120 years and didn't have a single convert. And God said, well done, good and faithful servant. See, modern Americans look at it in terms of numbers and say, well, you know, he didn't win anybody to Christ, so he was a failure. You know, God says failure has to do with, faithful, faith, with unfaithfulness. Success has to do with faithfulness. That's what Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The only thing that God looks at in terms of a, of a pastor... You know, I've been in churches where the success of the pastor is evaluated on a number of different human viewpoint systems as to how much money he's able to bring in in the collection and the building program he has or the evangelism program he has, all this other secondary stuff that is irrelevant. And the only thing that matters is that the pastor is faithful in explaining and teaching the Word of God. That's, what, that's God's standard. See, Jesus told the, the disciples, feed my sheep. He didn't say build my church. Jesus said, I will build my church, you feed my sheep. But most pastors are out there trying to build a church, and I don't know who's feeding the sheep. So we have to, it's not about our own personal level of success. Six, it's not about learning everything you can about the other person's belief system. You don't have to learn about Islam to witness to a Muslim. You don't have to learn everything about Mormonism to witness to a Mormon. You just have to know the Word of God. And then seventh, it's not about public speaking skills because the power is in God's Word. Now, some people say, well, doesn't it help to be eloquent? Doesn't it help to know some of these things? Sure, it's a help, but that's not the factor. The factor is the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. The power is in the message. It's not in the man. It's in the content, not the package. It, it, it's in the gospel that has power. It's not the methodology or technique. The person who has no public speaking ability, the person who has very little academic training and a low IQ can be just as successful in evangelism as the person with an advanced degree from three or four different seminaries 
with a high IQ because the power is not in the methodology or the technique, but in the message. So to be an effective witness, we have to understand the message first and foremost. That is the prerequisite for witnessing. We have to understand the basic issues. Number one, it's the universality and penalty of sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. We have to understand the concept of spiritual death as the penalty for sin, not physical death. And therefore, we can then begin to accurately explain the atonement that Christ died as a substitute for our sins, he paid the penalty for our sins, and that his death, his physical death, burial, and resurrection was designed to show that he conquered the consequences of that spiritual death. We have to know key promises. That's why, usually during the second hour, I say the same seven or eight different gospel uh, promises week in and week out. Most of you should have them memorized by now. They should be drilled into your soul so that you can you, you hear them in your sleep, and that's exactly why I do that. And so the next time you get involved in a witnessing situation, you, you will remember those verses. You'll be amazed that you somehow memorized John 3.18. It's only because you've heard it a thousand times from this pulpit. Effectiveness is on the content of the witness and on God the Holy Spirit. And we've studied that in John 16, verses 7 through 10, where Jesus said, When he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin, sin because they haven't believed in him. So the issue isn't personal sin, but failure to believe in Christ. He will convict the world concerning righteousness. That is, we lack righteousness, and we can only have access to God through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. In other words, what the Holy Spirit emphasizes is faith in Christ, imputed righteousness, and the fact that, that the devil has been, been judged and Christ has been victorious in his work on the cross. And that means that that should be the substance of what we're communicating in our witness. And then we need to realize that witnessing is our responsibility, the responsibility of every believer. Now, some of you have the gift of witnessing, and everywhere you go, as you mature, you'll get to a point more and more frequently, you're going to sit down and explain the gospel to somebody. I've been with people like that, and they'll, they'll stop someplace and get gas. When they go in to pay the gas bill, they're going to start witnessing to the guy behind the counter, and before long, everybody who's in the store is gathered around, and they're drawing out the top and bottom circle and drawing the barrier between Christ and man and explaining the gospel to everybody. That's one of the reasons we got those Evangel cubes down in the, uh, in, uh, the prep school, is to start teaching the kids and give them a good tool for uh, explaining the gospel. To, to their friends and to their parents and things like that. And whether, whether you use that or use a barrier diagram, whatever it is, there are different tools. And as you grow and mature as a believer, you need to utilize these to find out what, what you're more comfortable with. It develops flexibility. Everybody's different. Don't think that just because you, you approach one person one way and they respond to the gospel, that that'll work for the next person. Everybody's different. Every situation's different. Don't don't fall into the trap of thinking that there's some kind of canned approach or blueprint approach that will always work in witnessing. Witnessing is for every believer because it's part of our royal ambassadorship and part of our royal priesthood. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5:18 through 21 explains that we are all ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, it's our responsibility to be involved in witnessing to every. That's part of why you're here, and why and part of your Christian life is to witness to everybody that comes in your periphery. But the issue is the gospel, and we have to make sure it's clear. And the dynamics are 
found in Romans 1, 14 through 16. In Romans 1, 14, Paul says, I am under obligation. We are all under obligation. Secondly, in Romans 1, 15, says, he said, I am eager to preach the gospel. We are all to be eager to preach the gospel. It should be a priority. And then in Romans 1, 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. We should not be ashamed of the gospel. We should gladly proclaim it because that is part of our ministry and that is what has a re- makes a real difference in people's lives. Just come to a funeral a few times and realize how tenuous life is, that tomorrow any of us could be gone. There's no guarantee. You know, most of us think, well, sooner or later, eventually, next week, somehow, next month, I'll get around to giving the gospel to somebody. I hope that you never have to face the fact that you didn't give them the gospel and they were killed in an automobile accident yesterday, and now you're sitting around wondering why you didn't give them the gospel with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word to be challenged by the importance of witnessing and that the the power is not in us. It's not in our own ability. It's not in our own uh, speaking ability. It's not in the way we present the gospel. It's not in techniques. It's in you. It's in God the Holy Spirit who makes the gospel clear. And it's our job to make it as clear as we can to those around us and then leave it up to their volition. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, that, that this would have made it clear to them that They need to make a decision related to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for for every single sin in human history. So the issue is not sin. The issue is simply faith in Christ, accepting him as Savior. Right now we pray that if there's anyone here that that has never made this decision, that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would know that the Scriptures make it clear that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we will have eternal life. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we've studied today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.